0: I really hope you like it the West you
1: hello my friends welcome to another episode of the Matthew West podcast I'm your host Matthew West and I just have to start off by saying thank you thank you so much for all of your support Your encouragement for subscribing to the podcast, for leaving a review, and for telling all your friends about it. Thanks to you. We haven't even gotten through two full months of the show and we're over 100,000 downloads. So thank you guys so much for all the support. We did a thing. This show is real and I'm super excited about every episode. Today's episode is going to be special. So get ready. But first, I have to acknowledge a significant day in our nation's history, a day that we just honored and remembered this past week. I'm talking, of course, about September 11th, 2001. I've been thinking a lot about the significance of 9-11 in the story of our nation. This podcast is all about the power of story, and one thing that we're going to uncover is that a lot of our stories will have broken chapters. 9-11 represents one of those broken chapters. I want to read to you something that I wrote and posted on social media this past week. 9-11, a tragedy we will never forget. A day we should never forget. Even though the towers fell, 9-11 stands as a reminder that hatred is a real and powerful force, but will not prevail. I remember in the days and weeks after the attack, how our country came together, united in love for our great country and for our fellow man. That love and togetherness sent a loud message that love would indeed conquer hate. I'm praying for that kind of unity and healing once again in our nation. I'm so thankful for all the first responders and my prayers with all who lost a family member or a loved one on September 11th, 2001, 19 years ago. You see, the world moves on, but for those who lost somebody that they love, they still have that emptiness. They still have that ache. And as I watched on the news and saw the tribute, reading the names one by one of those who lost their lives, my heart couldn't help but grieve with those who are grieving. It sounds cliche, but it's so true. Freedom isn't free. And today, I'm reminded not to take it for granted. What do you say we get on with the rest of the show? My guest today is a former lead singer of a popular Christian rock group, Hawk Nelson. He was also the main songwriter in the band with hits like Diamonds, Live Like You're Loved, and my personal favorite, Drops in the Ocean. Originally from Canada, he called Nashville home for several years while he and the band toured all around the world just like me singing about Jesus. We shared many stages together, and they always put on an incredible show and sent out a positive message into the world. He has left Hawk Nelson, and today is now a highly talented filmmaker and writer. In May of this past year, he announced in a letter posted on social media that this Christian singer no longer believes in God. Here's a brief excerpt from the letter he posted. After growing up in a Christian home, being a pastor's kid, playing and singing in a Christian band, and having the word Christian in front of most of the things in my life, I am now finding that I no longer believe in God. The last few words of that sentence were hard to write. I still find myself wanting to soften that statement by wording it differently or less specifically, but it wouldn't be as true. I was pretty taken back, pretty shocked about John's story because we have such similar backgrounds and because I know him from the music industry. I think the Christian music industry was pretty shaken by it as well. But beyond that, the media picked up on the story and it became a nationwide story in an effort to better understand John's journey, to figure out what led him to this place and where he's at now, and really just... To have a chance to talk to my friend after he's made this huge decision in his life, I thought, I want to have John as a guest on the podcast. Now listen, there's a chance some of you might be tempted to be critical of John. Some of you will be tempted to be critical of me, thinking maybe I don't ask the right questions when it comes to apologetics. All I would just ask is that you listen with an open heart, that you say a prayer and say, Lord, what do you want to show me through this conversation? My prayer is that we'll all be challenged by this conversation, challenged to be able to say we know what we believe, to not settle for a surface level of faith, but to dare to believe that God can take us to deeper depths, that he is real, that he is alive, and that he calls us to be a bright light, shining a light of hope for a world that's wondering if God is real. Without further ado, let's go to the story house with my friend, John Steingard.
2: Do you love San Diego? I love it, dude. It's great. It would take a lot of zeros to get me out of this city. How many years was Nashville home? I was in Nashville for 10 years. Yeah. 10 years. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And so how many years now in San Diego? This is pretty recent that you moved, right?
2: We moved out to LA in 2014. I didn't realize you had moved to California that long ago. Yeah. So you know how you have conversations with your wife and you're like, someday we'll dot, 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 dot. That was one of those conversations for us that we were like, you know, someday we'll move back to California and we'll be close to family because we didn't have any family in Nashville. And that was, I think, one of the reasons that we were waiting to have kids, you know?
1: You were traveling all the time. So it's oh, like. Oh,
2: yeah. I mean, you know how that is. Yeah.
1: Same with me, even. Like, we didn't start having children right away because, mm-hmm. I mean, just the dynamics of our life, even if you have family nearby, it's like, congrats on the baby, honey. I got to go on tour. I'll
2: see you in six weeks.
1: Yeah. And that's just like a recipe for disaster and resentment. (laughs) Yeah.
2: We were sort of aware of that. So we were married for 10 years before we had kids. And then when we finally did have kids, that coincided with me backing off from music and the band and stuff like that.
1: Okay. But so for the final years of the band of Hawk Nelson, you were traveling from California while the other guys were in Nashville?
2: Yeah, probably the last couple of years of times that we ran across each other, I was living in either L.A. or or down here in San Diego. I know about like individual decisions for you, and we'll get into that, but as far as the band Hawk Nelson,
1: was it already kind of being talked about as a band that you were maybe ready to kind of...
2: Not sure how to say it, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) what what do you say,
1: retire? I guess, I mean, it's too young to say retire, but... Right, close the book kind of thing on that chapter.
2: Yeah. I had started to feel that I wanted to explore life outside of music. Not that long after moving to California, honestly. You know how it is in Nashville, you're really plugged into this community. And it's very easy to live with this sort of idea that this world is all there is. Right. And everything revolves around like what label are you with? What booking agency are you with? (laughs) Which producers are you working with? What writers do you write with? What tour are you on? Absolutely. And there's so much there. And it's such a tight knit community that it's really easy for that to feel like that's just everything. Yeah. And when I moved out to LA and then to San Diego a year or two after that, I was like confronted with this reality that I'm like, oh my gosh, I had such a limited view of what life is and what's possible. And I really would love to explore because I started touring when I was 20. It's kind of all you knew that whole time. Oh, yeah. My entire adult life was being in a touring band. And so I was sort of like, as I started to do more film work outside of Hawk and to experience things outside of Christian music, I was kind of like, well, man, there's a lot of life out here and I'd like to see some of it. Yeah. And I'd also like to be a bit more in control of my life, like, you know, being in a touring band. It's like for 15 years, I wasn't able to schedule vacation with my parents and my family and stuff like that, because it would be like, well, probably a tour is going to come up then. So I don't know if I can. And so there was all these sort of limitations that were just inherent in the career that I was a part of. It really does get set up to
1: where your family, your free time, your vacations, they get kind of what's left,
2: not what's best. Yeah. And... You know, that's a semantic thing to some degree. Obviously, someone in the family has to go make money. So there's going to be some sort of sacrifice made there. So it's not fair to criticize it too much. You're right. But it's a
1: difference between like, it's a big deal when like, if I take a trip with my daughter or with my wife or with my whole family, that is not in any way tied to oh, well, we had a show in San Diego. yeah. So uh, we're going to go do that show, but then we'll have a couple extra days. Even though that's still nice as a family, there's something special. Like I remember for my daughter's 13th birthday, I took her for a weekend and I had no show. There was no show nearby. I took that weekend off. How did that feel? Oh, it was like a thousand percent more special to her and Mm. to me because it was like, no, no, no. You're the sole focus here this weekend. How cool. It's not, hey, let's go do... Dad's show and then we'll piggyback some family time, but I totally can relate to that. she was aware that she was not an
2: add-on she was the headliner.
1: she was the headliner, yeah, nice use of musical terms that's exactly right, yeah,
2: like that that's cool, man, and when you're
1: able to make your family feel like that, yep, you know I think I don't know that I've done that enough, and it sounds like you and I shared that same exhaustion level.
2: I think it's very, very difficult to be a professional musician, a touring musician, I mean however you want to put it, it's very difficult to do that and also truly put your family first. It's very hard. Yeah. And you're right about it being like any profession is gonna have that
0: there's
1: gonna be an element of it. Yeah. Because you're doing like even your film work, mm-hmm. you're probably just as busy as you want to be and you do great work. You probably find even days there where it's like, okay, how do I still make my family the headliner? Cause I'm yeah, I'm doing
2: what I love to do and I'm getting all these
1: calls, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And as a solo artist, your experience of this might be slightly different than mine, although exactly. You have a lot of people that depend on you whether it's your band or your crew and stuff. So, it's not entirely different than my experience, but my experience was very much that like I was a part of a group that all of our decisions affect each other. If one of us decides to go on vacation, it sort of affects everybody. It was this all-consuming thing that I felt like I constantly had to make my family subservient to the needs of the band. And I got to a point where I was like, this is one of many reasons why I want to see what life is like outside of that. Yeah. So I sort of told the guys that at the beginning of 2017. And then I said, hey, I'm not like freaking out and quitting. Right. But I want to move in that direction. So how do we do that? And were they pretty receptive to that? Or were they like, what is happening? There was a range of responses. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a couple of the guys were actually sort of in similar places to that mentally somewhat. Not everybody was. So with each individual member of the band, I sort of had to walk through it in a little bit of a different way. Mm -hmm. But basically, we decided to finish the album we were working on. And then I agreed to continue to tour for two years. And then I said, so at the beginning of 2019, that's when there's going to be basically a full stop. Which you could have just said, see you later, guys, you're on your own. That's quite a,
1: what would you call it, a sunset clause almost, like sure. in contracts. You know, it's like you definitely gave a phasing out opportunity for them.
2: Well, and I had dedicated 15 years to this band and to like just wash my hands of it and say, I don't care about you guys. Yeah. But like I would regret going out that way. Yeah. I was looking to have as few regrets as possible, <laughs> basically. And it
1: mattered to you. You weren't being dismissive of something that you loved and you spent a long time building it. I would imagine it's tough to walk away from anything like that.
2: Yeah. And I mean, you've done the same. Yeah. You've been at this a good while, and I'm sure you've gone through a number of different seasons. And I mean, have you ever entertained the idea that you might want to do something else? You know, that's a great question. I feel
1: like I'm always keenly aware of the industry that I'm in and how it's not unlike the sports world where youth tends to be what's honored, (laughs) not necessarily longevity like you're not guaranteed yeah. longevity in the entertainment or you know music industry just like with athletes the average nfl player's career is 3 years that's crazy i was hanging with a dude the other day who actually beat the average for nfl players but like at 28 he's figuring out what's next for him and i think what's really cool about the other skill sets that you've developed along the way because i think sometimes in my career you can tend to start feeling like, well, wait a minute. So, whenever this season's done, whenever a radio station decides, yeah, we've played enough of that guy's song, or fans decide, ah, you know, it's time. They always say, like, a songwriter's the last one to know that he's out of a job. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> artists probably the same way. Yeah.
1: But then you can choose one of two roads. You can go, well, okay, the highlight of my career is behind me. Or do I believe that there's, a second act yeah. for me. And so for me it's been about like, okay, I'm gonna choose to believe that whenever like maybe the peak of my popularity is over, then I don't wanna be living in those kind of glory days. Like I believe the best is yet to come for me and yeah, for my family and maybe for my impact on the world. I would see these videos released by Hawk Nelson. They always seemed like they were like a step above the other stuff in the industry. Oh, thanks, man. I remember sending it like to my team going, who did this? And they're like, John did that. He's in the band. And I remember, I think I tried to hire you once and you were like, dude, I'm too busy. I'm like, wow. Okay. I see how it is. (laughs) Okay. I have to clarify That's why I set up this interview, because I just wanted to say, like, why were you too busy for me? You wanted to talk about our beef? No, not at all. I just thought it was so cool, because here you are. (laughs) You're in a band. You're leading the band, but then you're also developing
2: this totally incredible skill set of filmmaking. Unbelievable. Video was something I just kind of got into because we had this song called Diamonds and we wanted a music video for it. And we solicited treatments from directors and they were so bad, man. Really? Oh yeah. I was like, okay, what if we just like do a performance video with some cool, like double exposure stuff? I don't know how to do that, but I bet I could figure it out. Wow. And so I convinced the label to let me do it. And I said, I totally know what this sounds like. This sounds like the singer of the band just being like, hey, guys, let me do it. Right. I was like, cut the budget way down. So you're taking not much of a risk. And let me hire someone to help me that knows more than what I know. And so I did this Diamonds video. And looking back, it was like, you know, it was okay.
1: Well, it's like everything. You hope your latest work is better than your first, for sure.
2: Yeah. So then I started doing more and more stuff as I started making video content for Hawk People would be like, oh, hey, can you make something for me? And very quickly, I was like, wow, there's a real need for this stuff. And I couldn't help but feel like, you know how they talk about like the market will tell you what is needed. Yeah, What does the market need you to do? Right. Pretty quickly, I was like, I think the world needs me to be a filmmaker more than it needs me to be a musician. (laughs) It seems that way. And so I started doing more and more video work. And you loved it. I did,
1: yeah. It's not just, hey, the world needs... Toilet paper, so I'm going to make toilet paper, which by the way, is the world still... The world
2: does need toilet paper.
1: (laughs) That's a horrible analogy, especially comparing it to someone's art. Don't read into that. But it's sort of a fitting (laughs) one. (laughs) It's just as much of a passion project that also happens to fill what you saw as a need in the industry.
2: Yeah. I feel like when people talk about you should chase your dream or follow your passion or something like that, I think that stuff can change over time. And I think that You also have the opportunity to dig deeper into, like, why are you passionate about things? The last time I wrote a song was October 2017, and I haven't written a song since then. Really? I say that to say that, like, I think songwriting was something that I was passionate about, but it was not my deepest desire. Sure. It was an expression of a deeper desire. And the deeper desire is to make something that's meaningful to people. Right, And so there's lots of ways you can do that. You can do it with music, and you can do it through film. I sort of discovered that there's a lot of different ways that I can express this desire to make things that are meaningful for people.
1: And they're just as fulfilling to you as if you as the days when you wrote a song. So it's not like you walked away from any type of creating art. It's almost like you exchanged one for the other and then found just as much fulfillment.
2: Yeah, and even in Christian music, I always talk about Christian music as this blend between art and ministry and business. And all three of those elements are present for everybody, Yes. but everyone sort of blends them differently. And so you'll see some artists that are like heavy on the business. Interesting. You know, some artists are heavy on the art, like a John Mark McMillan is heavy on the art, right? Yes. And then some artists are heavy on the ministry, where you can tell like, it's not that they don't care about the music, but the ministry is what they are passionate about, right? Yep, absolutely.
1: That's a really good description of it. You know, I always say that Christian music seems to be the genre where... What is said between the songs matters as much as the songs themselves. Certainly, yeah. And it seems like that maybe would be why sometimes you'll see a lot leaning in, in that lane more so, where it's the message and that ministry component, obviously.
2: Yeah. My season as the singer of Hawk Nelson, I learned about that in a whole new way. I was the guitar player for the first eight years I was in the band, and then I was the singer for the second half of. My time in the band. Were you an original member? Well, sort of. I joined in 2004, like right as the first album was coming out. So I didn't participate in making the first album. But right as that first album was coming out is when I was joining as the guitar player. So I doubt there's very many people that remember the previous guitarist. But technically, I was not original in that sense. So did Hawk Nelson start out with the idea of being in contemporary Christian music? At that time, you know, the early 2000s, there was this sort of stream of music that was like vaguely Christian. So we were on Tooth and Nail. That was the label we were on. They're based in Seattle. I remember. Yeah. Their approach was very much like they would sign bands that had Christians in them, but they wouldn't really stipulate what the content of your music needed to be. And so what sort of seemed to work for people is if you write music that's really positive and sort of vaguely Christian y but not specific. If you listen to the first couple Hawk Nelson albums, you won't hear Jesus. You won't hear even God really, but the things that are being sung about are sort of vaguely Christian and positive. And so we sort of lived in that weird in-between space for the first three or four albums. And then culture sort of started to change and right. it became a lot more acceptable for like a Christian mom to take her daughter to see Taylor Swift or something like that. Right. When that culture changed, I noticed the need for vaguely Christian bands sort of went away.
1: Interesting.
2: I mean, this is just my perspective, but that whole swath of bands that are sort of Christian, but not CCM, that whole thing went away. So, your message sort of naturally became a stronger message because obviously, then songs like Miracles or. I feel like I saw this cultural shift happening in real time. You know, I remember having conversations with other artists that we're also noticing this stuff. If you look at a band like Switchfoot, they are sort of one of those bands that's sort of like vaguely Christian and positive, right? Like everything that they say fits nicely inside a Christian worldview, but they're not saying like Jesus or God very much in their music. Right. But they go and they participate in the general marketplace. Yes. And so it seems like bands like Switchfoot, Colony House, you know, bands like that, that are believers... If they don't want to be explicitly CCM, they sort of have to just go out and participate in the general market now, which... I actually think is good. Right, like Need to Breathe would be another example, I would think. Yeah, and that's a great example, yeah. So I sort of saw that happening, and my feeling was that Hawk Nelson wasn't the kind of band that would flourish in that environment. It felt like the best direction for us to go was to embrace Christian music fully, or I guess more fully than we had, and so... When I sort of became the main songwriter in the band, I pushed us very much in that direction. You were the main songwriter in the band, right? Yeah, for the three albums that I was the singer, yeah. Gotcha. So like,
1: uh, Drops in the Ocean. Yeah. Which you specifically mentioned that song, like in the letter you wrote. Mm -hmm. That song, I mean, I remember when that came out, like such an anthem. It was such a huge chorus anyways. So you almost describe it like you saw what was taking place in the marketplace. And what were the three categories you put on? Oh yeah,
2: business and ministry and art. So
1: that description almost seemed more, what would you say, business then? Yeah, I think so. Did it feel like that at the time or would you recognize it for that? Because obviously you still had a desire to put
2: out a positive message in the world, but... Certainly, yeah. Is that the category you'd put that in, those decisions? Yeah, I think that we liked being a band, we liked playing music, and we liked being a part of people's redemptive stories. Like when we meet people at shows and we hear hear how a song that we had written or put out, when we hear how that's impacted someone's life in a positive way, if you can have a career doing things that help people in any way, that's pretty cool. And so we really liked that. And our perspective and my perspective still is if you can make business decisions that allow your job to be more fruitful and more successful and also help more people then how is that bad <laughs> and so right. and so i guess from a certain point of view you could say that me seeing those cultural changes and wanting the band to be more explicit about matters of faith i guess you could look at that in a cynical way and feel like we were being insincere but i look at it in that we were looking to bring deeper meaning into how we spent our time and One of the things that Jeff Mosley, who is the owner of Fairtrade, the label that we were on during that time, one of the things he says is that when people buy your music, it means you're serving them well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One thing you just said too about seeing the hope it was bringing to people or the connection that your songs were making, I've written different types of songs throughout my career. Say I'd write a country song for an artist and it's like good old summertime song or whatever. Yep. I've never had somebody tell me, man, that song about putting your toes in the sand just really made a huge impact in my life. You know what I mean? Yep. Now, the, you know People turn to music for all different reasons at different times. Mm-hmm. It's a love song to walk down the aisle to at your wedding. It's a new beginning song to celebrate your graduation. It's the party song for sure. the summer barbecue. But I've always felt like when somebody shared with me, man, that song really... I always felt weird when people were like, that song like helped me. It's like, well, I don't know that it was that song that helped you,
2: but... Something helped you, and that song was a part of that journey for them. And once, like for me, when I got a taste of that type of like... Yeah, it's there's nothing like it.
1: Yeah, it just kind of ruined me from ordinary. Like, I didn't feel like I could go back and write a song about nothing.
2: Right. I mean, once you've had forgiveness or do something or... Emotions motions or like... Okay, now you're just flattering me. Now you know my catalog. Oh, come on. That's how awesome. could I not know your catalog? <laughs> well, how many shows have we done together? It's impossible for me to not know some of these songs, Matthew. Likewise. But once you've had that kind of connection, it just feels like, okay, there's something
1: meaningful taken. And I mean, deep down, we want to be part of something meaningful anyways. Dude,
2: that is it, dude, what you just said. Deep down, we want to be a part of something meaningful. Don't we crave that? That is inherently self-evidently true
0: Mm.
1: alright my friends it's time for me to make a truth be told confession truth be told I'm super disciplined when it comes to my daily exercise routine you might not know that about me But my friend who's a trainer always reminds me that it can't just be about exercising routinely, I have to have a healthy diet as well. And that is where I constantly fall short. I used to think that eating better meant hours of recipe research, multiple trips to the grocery store, monotonous meal prep, no thank you. But then I met Freshly. Freshly understands that food needs to be delicious, healthy, and simple. Because, let's be honest, if it's not easy, I'm not going to do it. And if it doesn't taste good, I'm not going to eat it. With Freshly, you can avoid the grocery store, enjoy fully prepared dinners delivered fresh, not frozen, right to your door. Put your feet up, relax, Freshly's chefs and nutritionists have done all the hard work. All you have to do is heat for three minutes and then dinner is done. In my case today, lunch was done. I just had an epic serving of chicken parm.
0: Chicken parm, you taste so good.
1: Oh, so good. Imagine better for you golden oven fried chicken, creamy springtime risotto, one of my favorites, and fall apart tender beef brisket. That's just a few of the 30 plus health conscious options options to choose from. So join almost one and a half million satisfied customers like me and skip the shopping, prepping, cooking, and cleanup. Freshly is offering our listeners $40 off for their first two orders at Freshly.com slash West. That's Freshly.com slash West. We're both preacher's kids, right? Yeah. hmm I read the letter that you posted, obviously. And, you know, for those who are listening right now, which I don't know if they told you, but I've only got two listeners, John. Did
2: they they warn you that? No, it's your mom and dad. My mom and my dad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So I guess for your listeners, it's worth explaining. In, In May, I wrote a post and I put it on Instagram and it sort of outlined where I had come to with regards to faith and believing in God. And I had been sort of going through a several year process of privately having some doubts about God and faith and Christianity and processing all that stuff and trying to figure out what I really believed. And I had been in that process long enough and kind of come to the conclusion that I had come to for long enough that I felt like it was dishonest not to say something. And so I publicly came out and said that I really didn't believe in God anymore. And I sort of expected it to be I guess maybe a minor shakeup in the Christian music world for like a day or two, but Mm -hmm. I just didn't think that, I don't know. I just didn't think it would rock the boat that much. I mean, I think a few people would be like, oh man, remember that guy, you know, or something like that. I don't know. But about four or five days after I posted that Fox news ran an article and then CNN ran an article and then the New York post ran an article and then USA Today read wow. article, And then yeah. it just went, blah, 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 blah. And it became this thing. And I was, like, not entirely prepared for that. But it's been really cool because it's enabled me to connect with so many people, mostly through Instagram, that are in the same boat as me. And the boat for me is that I really thought that I would post that and that I'd be like, sweet, great, I'm done with God and I can just live my life free of this stuff now. Hmm. But what I discovered was as soon as I did that, I did have freedom. Like I felt like this whole new level of like, I'm not constrained by Christianity. I'm not constrained by being a Christian musician. Like no one has any expectations like this on me anymore. And so now I can believe whatever I want. And I felt so free. But then very quickly, I was like, okay. So what do you believe? And the last two months has been a crash course in trying to figure that out, and I'm certainly not all the way through it, but I'm finding, like what you said earlier, we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, and that is true. Mm. From what I observe in the world is that whenever
1: a high-profile figure in the faith community comes to a decision or makes a decision publicly, especially, or announces that they're no longer a Christian or denounce their belief in God—that almost a hundred percent of the time be, does become major news. And it felt like your story was no different. I remember reading the letter you posted and then seeing exactly what you were—obviously, right in the middle of, of just like it becoming nationwide. So while I was surprised to read your words, I wasn't surprised as much about how widespread the news mm. became. I do feel like the world, or just even news outlets. I hesitate to even say it like this, but it does feel like they love a story like that. Like when a notable believer says they no longer believe. It's a way more widespread story than when somebody who doesn't believe starts to believe. Says they now do. It. Yeah. <laughs> like that doesn't get on CNN and Fox and all the
2: others as much. Yes, I and I wonder, like, why do you think that is? Well, I've thought about that a lot. And a lot of people that I'm close to that are Christian are very quick to jump to the whole like, see the liberal media, they love it when someone leaves Christianity because they hate <laughs> Christianity. And I'm like, okay. I'm not saying that there's none of that there, but, like, I think there's more going on than that. One of my biggest frustrations with Christian culture is this sort of culture war lens of looking at everything. This idea that we're in this battle between—it's, like, conservatives versus liberals, and it's Christians versus atheists, and, like— There's a real problem there because we're not listening to each other Mm. when we're looking at everything through those lenses. Yeah, I've been going on shows with apologists and having discussions, you know, with the Christian apologists and and also going on shows with atheists and having discussions. And I mean, incidentally, on these atheist podcasts, like, I spend most of my time defending Christianity. (laughs) Wow. I feel like some of the arguments against Christianity are actually kind of not fair. And I mean, some of them are somewhat fair. Well, you have a unique perspective in, the, in your upbringing, your relationship with your family. Are they still in Canada? Yeah, they are.
1: And do you still have a close relationship? Even before all of this, you have this unique relationship still with your family, so you seem to have a real soft place in your heart or a sensitivity towards the Christian community.
2: Yeah, I talked to my family a lot about this stuff before I posted about it publicly, so they weren't totally surprised, but... You know, I think it became real on a whole new level when I went public. And my dad has used like Hawk Nelson music videos in his sermons like, my dad's a pastor, you know, like we talked about. And, you know, he'll speak and he'll find some really obscure way of making one of our songs relevant to his message. Even if I'm like, yeah, that's a stretch, dad. (laughs) He's just proud of his son. (laughs) Yeah, he's just so proud of his son, right? And so, like, the poor guy, he's been proud of his son being this Christian musician and songwriter. And then I go and post that I don't believe in God anymore. Mm. But I do think relationally, While it has been a challenge with my family and also with my wife's family, it actually has brought a whole new level of closeness because I feel like there's things that were unsaid before that are not unsaid anymore, and we can actually work through them and look each other in the eye and know each other more deeply, and that is good. How have people loved you well since you
1: put out that letter And how have people responded in a way where you're like, well, that's hateful or that's, you know, sounds like your parents have loved you well through this while acknowledging that they're still maybe hurt from it or or not sure how to respond.
2: Yeah. With every relationship, it's taken on its own form. And so like with my mom, it's a lot of very emotional conversations about, you know, she feels very strongly that she hears from God, that God speaks to her very, very closely and intimately and so she doesn't understand how I can feel like that's not real. And so that is tough because I have no desire to tell my mom, hey, I think that's your imagination, or I think that's your subconscious. I have no desire to take that away from her, but I kind of do when I say that I don't believe in God or that I don't think I believe. I even have a hard time saying I don't believe in God because I'm sort of like, oh, well, maybe. Huh. So are you agnostic Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's so funny. You get into these internet places and you discover that everyone defines these terms differently. Right, yeah. And I don't
1: ask that to get into the weeds, but I am curious. Yeah,
2: oh, dude, I'm an open book, man. Yeah. The place that I'm at right now, when I look at the entirety of what you believe, if you say that you're a Christian, you know, sort of the core beliefs, I have a hard time saying, yeah, I unequivocally believe in that. But when you look at a more atheistic point of view, like naturalism is basically the idea that matter is all there is, basically, that like what we see and touch, like that's it. And I find that view dissatisfying. Hmm. And so I'm in this awkward place where I'm just like, a lot of the things that you would need to believe in order to say that you're a Christian, I have a hard time believing. But then I also don't feel satisfied with just. A completely atheistic perspective, I guess I'm a little difficult. Agnostic is probably the closest term to where I'm at right now, but I've never had more conversations about God than I'm having right now. I've never read the Bible more than I am right now. So you're digging in, you're on a journey, you're searching, you're figuring out... Well, there's so much there, dude. Yeah. Like There's so much I didn't know. So your
1: letter wasn't, even if it felt definitive at the time, it's almost like it wound up being... A letter that opened a gate for you to maybe go and do even some deeper digging. Yeah. But one of the things that you had said, you posted a quote, which I thought was interesting. And really, when I read it, I thought, well, this is what I would seek to accomplish even in our chat today. Sure. Was, you said, life continually presents us with opportunities to talk with people who see things differently than we do. We can only learn from their perspective when we quiet our urge to teach them ours. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought that was a really good way of saying it. And to me, what was very interesting was like, okay, if this was a decision that was going on in your personal life, was it because you were already a public figure that you Mm. felt the need to publicly announce that? Or was there? okay? simply put, that was the reason. Yeah, because I've had a few people ask me, like, why did you feel the need to be public about this? Because I would imagine Christians maybe go, oh, so is he seeking to not only make that announcement, but bring as many people as he can? You know what I yes, mean? Yes, like, yes.
0: Do you see I what I'm saying?
2: Yep, I totally see what you're saying. And I've definitely had people level that at me. And I understand where that comes from. I think if someone has that thought, it's not hard for me to imagine how they got there. But for me, the way that I explain it is that, look, I spent my entire adult life speaking very publicly about matters of faith. and then to go through this process of, you know, there's all sorts of words people use for this process, but they all sort of like don't entirely encapsulate it to me, but like deconstruction or deconversion or whatever. But to go through this process and to be completely silent publicly about it, it felt oddly wrong to me because it was like, well, A, I've been so public about matters of faith, so to not be public about this feels incongruent, sort of. And the other thing, and this is really what did it for me, is that I felt like sometimes in Christianity there's this culture of if you doubt or question or if you're struggling to believe the things that the group believes, you need to sit down and you need to shut up and you need to not talk about it because Mm. you might disturb someone else. Mm. And I actually think that's really harmful. And I think all the healthiest Christian communities that I know communities where questions are welcomed right, and where doubts can be processed openly and there's no shame associated with it. And so I feel like if I hadn't spoken publicly, I would have been participating in a culture of shame. Mm. I didn't want to do that. And I had to also trust one of my favorite quotes of all time is from a NASA astronaut named Gene Cernan. And he said, the truth needs no defense. Mm. And I feel that way about God. I'm like, okay, God, If you're there, if you are who I was taught that you are, I mean, who knows? I mean, if you're there, you can be whatever you want to be and do whatever you want to do. You don't need my approval. But like, if you want us as human beings to believe in you, then you're strong enough to withstand our questions. Because if you are there, you've set reality up and life up in such a way that it's not definitive. It's not empirically provable that God's even there. So... If he is there, then he wanted it to be that way. And he has to be able to handle our questions.
1: Even the way you just described that, I'm just, this is just out of curiosity, Mm -hmm. but like, do you ever find yourself like, for lack of a better term, like accidentally talking to God or, or like not accidentally, but like, I know exactly what you mean. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm just wondering, like, even, even with the way you phrased that statement was like, okay, God, in a way you were sort of hypothetically,
2: like, talking to God if he's there. I still do. You still do? Yeah, I still pray. What is that? I don't know what that is, man. You still pray? Yeah, I mean, kind of. When I pray now, it sounds something like, God, I don't know if you're there. If you're not there, then what I'm doing right now isn't harming anything. But if you are there, then if you can hear what I'm doing right now and talking to you, Can you show up in my life? So that's what you're asking for, is like, not a sign, make yourself real to me. I don't even know if a sign is that meaningful to me. I was raised in a very charismatic sort of expression of Christianity, where your relationship with God, your relationship with Jesus is the most important thing. Me too. That's exactly me too. The thing I struggle with in that is if you're having a relationship with someone who you can't see, can't hear, can't touch, it's very difficult to ascertain the difference between a real relationship with God and you sort of having conversations with your own subconscious. Your own mind, yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult to figure out, like, for all of you out there listening to this, probably most of you have not audibly heard from God. I know there's some people that feel that they have. But there's this very difficult thing where it's like, for me, for my whole life, anytime I prayed or was, like, trying to nurture a relationship with God, it's very difficult for me to look back and figure out, was I actually developing a relationship with God or was I manufacturing this thing? And the culture I was in valued that thing, so I did it. The culture
1: of your pastor's kid upbringing and it being in the Christian industry musically?
2: Yeah, and sort of like if you're in a culture where where a relationship with God or relationship with Jesus is the most important thing. It's sort of this nebulous thing, like you feel pressure to sort of conjure up this relationship. And then, you know, you go to church and you participate in what can only be described as like a ritual or a game, right? Like you Mm. go and we've got worship, which is we've got music. And you and I know this better than most, that when you write music, part of what you're doing is you're trying to elicit an emotional response.
1: Yeah, well, and it's out of an emotion most of the time. I mean, totally. At its best, at its finest, it's coming out of a sincere expression of emotion that then brings about emotion. Sure. And I'm not saying that's duplicitous. No, I get what you're saying. Like, I'm going to push this button. I'm going to dial this thing up here.
2: Right. Well, I think for some people it is. Yeah. For, some people do know, like, oh, if I do this chord progression and I write this sequence of words and I...
1: Even the rah-rah during the show, John. I mean, you know... Oh, for like, sure. There is this dialing up element that... When we're not being the most authentic version of ourselves on stage, it can be, well, I know if I say this, the crowd will, and part of that-
2: I think that was part of it for me is that learning to be a frontman. I learned what things captured a crowd. Yeah. Because for me, being a front man, that was an education. It didn't come to me maybe as naturally as you, like I studied it. I studied you, actually. You're one of the people that I studied. And I'm like, oh, when... I mean, I can't... What not to do or... (laughs) I can't recreate the writing a song on demand thing that you do. I mean, that's spectacular. I mean, that's not something that anyone can just replicate. The skill
1: of improvising horrible songs to make a crowd laugh. No, it's brilliant, dude. That's funny.
2: But with regards to church, it's like... I'm aware of these things that you can do to sort of create an experience. Mm -hmm. My awareness of the fact that people can do certain things to create these experiences makes me distrust the experience. Interesting.
1: This was a quote that I thought of that you tell me if it applies in any way to your journey and even the conversation we're having, but Brennan Manning, he passed away, but he, You remember the ragamuffins, you know, like uh, Rich Mullins from back in the day? Yes. He wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Yeah. But one of his quotes, and actually this quote I think is heard at the beginning of an old DC talk song, but it says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. Mm. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable.
2: Dude, that speaks to the core of what I've been feeling the last two months. Okay. Oh, it's such a, I, I didn't know that quote, and that is so good. I feel like I have been living in a place that's sort of the reverse of that. I stumbled upon this thought a couple months ago, and it's been sort of wrecking me. So let me share it with you, and maybe it'll wreck you too. Absolutely. People tend to think that what they say they believe is what they believe. And I actually don't think that's the best representation of what anyone believes, really. I think what people most truly believe will be expressed in what they act out. And so if you say you believe in God and he's there and he sees everything you do but then you go and cheat on your wife you don't really you know you're not acting as if you believe God sees everything and will sort of be watching you and take this into account right It's almost like if you go and do something quote unquote sinful we can talk about the word sin that's a trigger word but it's almost like when you sin or when you do something that you know is wrong on some level You're actually in that act, you're denying God Mm. because you're saying, I'm in this moment choosing to act as if God doesn't exist. And you would engage in those things if you had some thought that like, you know, on some level, I kind of don't think he's there. And so I'm just going to go ahead and do this. Mm. And that may not be a conscious thought, but I think it's in there somewhere. Anytime we do something that we know is wrong. And I'm sort of living in this opposite place where like, I have publicly said, I don't believe in God. But more than ever, I find myself motivated to live in such a way that sort of indicates that I do. Mm. Part of my journey, I did a documentary in Uganda about a year and a half ago, and I documented this really, really horrible situation with this people group in Uganda. And I saw suffering like I've never experienced before. And children the same age as my kids, suffering just unimaginably. That actually made it hard for me to understand how a loving God could let sort of this happen. And so that was part of my deconstruction, really. But I've been so motivated the last year or so to be like, I want to be involved in more practical alleviating the suffering of people. And I noticed that that is deeply fulfilling. And so I'm wondering, why am I motivated to alleviate the suffering of others? Why is that? You mentioned the title
1: of one of my songs, but it's a song that I wrote that I don't live up to. But to me, a lot of my favorite songs of my own are the ones that are challenging me. Like, I'm trying to live up to the message. I
2: think it's one of the most powerful songs you've ever written. You know which one I'm talking about? Do something.
1: Yeah. It's like, God, why don't you do something about this hurt I see, this pain in the world? Why would you allow this? And then perhaps the answer is, he says, I did. I created you. And to see that motivation... It's how do we respond when we see the injustices of the world? And yeah, there's a whole lot of people who've walked away from the church because somebody hurt me in the church, yes, or I saw people not living out what they said they believed, and then to me, obviously, I am a believer in the Bible, and I believe it's God's instruction manual for my life. That's not just what I say, I believe it really is mm-hmm. my firm belief, but I identify so much with what Paul would write where you know, how he describes the walking contradiction that he is, and that mm-hmm. we all contend to be, where he talks about, he's like, I don't understand. I do what I don't yeah. want
2: to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. Yeah.
1: Exactly. It's like a mm-hmm. tongue twister, but there's so much like that I identify in that. And yet Paul, who was the first one to call himself the chief of sinners, was still the one acknowledging that without God, he would be a mess. You know, he's the guy with the thorn in his flesh. He was the guy that I just loved how he always led with how flawed he was, Mm -hmm. but he was still coming to this acknowledgement of the freedom that he's found even in that. And so, because that is, that's such a challenge. It's like, why do I say that I believe in God? And then I
2: go and I make the stupid decisions as if, and it's that struggle internally with all of us. See, I'm in the literally the opposite place. Why do I say I don't believe in God? And yet I find myself compelled to act in so many ways that seem to indicate that I do. This is why it's so interesting to talk to you because I read your letter and it's like, I know John,
1: I know the Hawk Nelson John, I know the Drops in the Ocean John, I know, I know festival tents and catering and the kind person that you are. And it's interesting, because to hear you talk today, it's like, no letter that you would publish or put out could fully describe the complexity of the journey that you're walking. Yeah. Just like no letter I could put out about the current state of my faith journey today, would still not be able to get below the
2: surface of the depths of all that's happening in our lives and the journey that we're on. Totally. I mean, it's like, describe everything about your daughter in one Instagram post. Go. Exactly. (laughs) The thing that I just have come away with is whatever it is that you believe, if you believe it deeply, it's been hard fought. You probably have encountered some of these people, and, and I never really answered this part of your question earlier, but you asked sort of how people have responded. Oh, yeah. Like, who's loved you well? How? Yeah. yeah. So on the Christian side of things, people who have a faith that has been hard fought have been very kind to me. And what I mean by that is some people, they walk out of faith that has some bruises. But there's no fear anymore. Well, I mean, maybe, yes. sir I mean, maybe. Or
1: maybe, I guess what I'm saying is like, I just had your name on this list of like, ever since I read John's letter, if I'm going to do a podcast, I don't want to just have nice, perfect little conversations in every episode. Like I want to be challenged. One, I want other people to be inspired and encouraged. And the whole heartbeat of this podcast is to encourage people to figure out what it means to live a more meaningful story with their life. It's good. But let me just be totally honest with you is I put your name down on this list and then I was like... I kind of was a little scared. So I started to make a list of what don't I want this sure. conversation to be. And so far we have extremely succeeded in that. We're like this should not be any kind of a gotcha thing. Yeah. I was looking at some of your Instagram posts of like people saying, "John, I'm praying for you." Or Right. And that's why I was asking like who's loved you well? How have they showed you kindness, but it was out of that initial fear of like, well, wait a minute, like this could be an uncomfortable conversation because sure, my faith has been tested and I've come to a totally different place in why I believe what I believe, but not without it being tested. And mm-hmm. you've come to a place with it being tested and you're on a different side And I was like, well, wait a minute. Am I willing to have an uncomfortable conversation? Yeah. And the answer was yes. And that's why I was so glad that this worked
2: out. Yeah. And I even, when the idea came up, I tried to make clear. I was like, hey, nothing is off limits. Let's talk about everything. That's what they told me. Yeah. I thought that was so cool. Well, because how else can we really... Okay. This is just the truth, right? If there's something that's off limits, automatically, it's the most interesting thing you could talk about. (laughs) That's what makes comedians... Their best, right? (laughs) Right. The best way to get your kids interested in something is to tell them that they can't do it. That is the truth. I have a three-year-old and a two-year-old, and the best way to get them interested in a particular toy is to take it away. (laughs) It's like reverse psychology of some sort. I mean, it's the truth. I sort of joke with people. I'm like, hey, if you want your kids to read the Bible, you should probably ban it. (laughs) Just tell them that you can read anything except the Bible. And they'll want to read the Bible more than anything. (laughs) So, I mean, I feel like these conversations are best when we can go to any of the places that might be uncomfortable. Honestly, this conversation has not been all that uncomfortable, really. No. No. I feel like there's a certain type of person whose belief set and worldview has been so hard fought that they have to look at other people with empathy and go like, man, I get it. This stuff is hard. It's not easy. It's not obvious. And those people, those types of people have been very, very kind to me. And yes, there are the other kind where, you know, I've had plenty of people say like, on twitter i think recently i had an exchange where i someone said you know don't you think that if god was real and he really wanted us to believe in him that he would just make his existence obvious and he would just appear and talk to us i wrote back and i said i think about that all the time cuz i do and then someone wrote back and was like he did do that it's called the bible and i'm like okay, we're probably not going to have a meaningful conversation with with this person. Because it's going to go, yeah. Well, because it's like anyone who thinks that this stuff is like really easy and obvious and just plain as day hasn't thought about it deeply. They've just accepted it on a surface level. If that's meaningful and in that you're happy... That's great. I know people who are not interested in thinking deeply about these things, and they just kind of go with the flow. They're like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, like
1: a herd mentality. Yeah. I think what you're getting at, and the challenge that anybody can take away from this who's listening right now is know what you believe, know why you believe it, mm-hmm. and dig in. Like One of my favorite scriptures is Jeremiah 29, 13. And John, you're somebody who's been in the Christian space for a long time mm-hmm. and everybody would focus on Jeremiah 29, 11, where yeah. God is saying, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. But then like two verses later, there was one day where that verse really stuck out to me and it said, you will seek me and find me mm-hmm. when you seek me with all your heart. And mm-hmm. in that verse, I felt like was a real challenge to me of going like, yeah. hey, Matthew, is this belief system you have, is this just a family business, a family connection? That's one of the things that we have in common. It's like our whole lives... Up until recently for you, right? Mm-hmm. Preacher's kid growing up in church. Yeah. Family business. Professional Christian. Professional. Dude, I literally wrote a chapter in my last book about being a professional mm-hmm. Christian. Somebody who has lived out their personal faith in a public spotlight. Yeah. And then growing up and then joining your band and you and me going around the country, we're on stages and you're living out what's a personal faith in a public way. And then like what we talked about earlier, learning how to get good at that. Yeah. Yeah. And being more focused on maybe the outward expression than the inward journey and mm-hmm. inward development and inward testing of your faith. Yeah. So I think what you're illustrating is you're challenging yourself just by your own admission. You're nowhere near the end of your discovery. No. You just used the word deconstruction. Now, you know, I'm actually living in a construction site right now in a way. And oh, are you? I know what deconstruction looks like. And deconstruction means you're nowhere near. The finished construction. (laughs) That means the water ain't even in the pool yet.
2: (laughs) Well, and it's also very messy. I've tried to do this in the healthiest way possible, but it's destructive in its nature. Most people that I know have said 2020 is like the hardest year they've had in a long time. It's like I told my wife yesterday, I was like, you know, I know 2020 is like the worst year of your life. 2019 was the worst year of my life. Wow. Because it was February of 2019 where I first entertained the idea that God might not be real. Entertaining that idea was so terrifying and horrible. I was depressed for most of last year, like seriously depressed. And I started going to therapy and that actually really helped a lot. Mm. I do sort of chuckle when every once in a while someone will be like, oh, well, you're just... You're just denying God because you're living in sin and you want to justify either an addiction or you're gay or you're blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wow. if someone thinks I'm gay, I'm sort of like flattered most of the time i'm like oh thank you because any of my friends that are gay they're attractive and they dress well and i'm like they take care of themselves and i'm like okay well i'm i'm happy to be lumped in with those people you always look more rock star i
1: mean (laughs) your hair alone i always i would always look at you at festivals or your album covers man i could not pull off that hairstyle that is quite impressive like there's the
2: rock star look and then there's whatever I am,
1: yeah well the
2: dad look <laughs> sure yeah and i am a dad certainly so uh, but like i say all that to say that i think sometimes people have this stereotype in their head of like people who quote unquote fall away or like walk away from the lord or backslide or whatever word you want to use right 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 and the image is that like they're enticed by the world and they want to go and do some sin in and so they're going to justify their desires by denying that God exists. And for me, it's like the idea that God wasn't there was not a welcome idea. It wasn't one I wanted. It was a really destructive idea in my life, but it was one that I couldn't escape based on what I had seen and what I had been reading and the sort of like me looking at my life and going like, what do I really, really believe And back to the idea of, like, your deepest beliefs are the ones that you act out. I think for a while, I had been living as though I didn't believe in God. And that's not to say that I had been, like, doing all these awful things. But I realized that this belief in God, like, losing it, it meant I no longer had certainty about the future. I no longer could believe that there's someone looking out for me. I no longer could believe that someone was looking out for my children and had a plan for their life. When I die, who knows what happens? You know, all of a sudden life started to feel really short.
1: Now see, all of those things you just said, when you talked about depression of 2019, those things you just listed, that would be depressing for me.
2: (laughs) Well, that's where I was all of 2019. I was hit with all of those things. And that was why I started going to therapy. Mm. I was basically in this very nihilistic place of, if God is not real, nothing means anything. That wasn't a welcome fun place to be it was really horrifying and yeah it took me a long time to sort of work my way out there actually ended up being a couple of really positive things out of it
1: It's been such a good conversation that I've had with John Steingard that it really couldn't be contained in just one episode. And that's why tomorrow I'm going to be bringing you the final portion of my talk with John in a special bonus episode. So we're going to close out today's episode with songs from the story house. But first... It's always a good day on the Matthew West Podcast when my better half, my best friend, Mrs. Emily West, chooses to join me. Thanks for showing up. Happy to be here. I wanted you here for a very specific reason. The heartbeat of this podcast is that every listener would leave every episode inspired, encouraged, and challenged to go out and live the most meaningful story with the one life that they get. And that means sometimes we want to bring up some resources that we think can really help people, right? Absolutely. And right now I want to talk about the importance of counseling, therapy, support. Now, you've helped me understand how important it is, and I want you to just share what counseling has done for you other than learn how to put up with me?
2: <laughs> oh, I've benefited so much from counseling over the years. Um, you know, I had a difficult childhood and it has helped me to overcome some things that went on in my childhood that I definitely didn't want to repeat as an adult, as a mother and a wife. So um, I've used therapy for years, whether it be just for myself, for our marriage, our kids, right. our family. It's helped me become the person I am today.
1: I always grew up With this stigma around counseling, like it was some sort of sign of weakness. Oh, so-and-so's in therapy or so-and-so's in counseling. But you've really helped me see that seeking support for my marriage, for my family, for me as an individual, for mental, emotional, spiritual health, that's not a sign of weakness. That's actually a sign of strength because all of these things matter too much to just sweep them under the rug or try to deal with them on our own. And that's why I wanna tell you guys about Talkspace Online Therapy. They're here to give you that same support because we all need it right now. You get matched with a licensed therapist from the comfort of your device and reach out 24 seven, whenever something's on your mind. You'll hear back daily, five days a week. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationship issues, and more. If you've got something specific that you wanna work on right now, they're gonna find someone who's right for you. Here's the best part. Everybody should be able to get this kind of support. Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. But with Talkspace, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist and they'll engage with you at least five days a week. That means you never have to wait to share what's on your mind. The bottom line is we all need someone to talk to. And Talkspace wants to give the licensed support that we all deserve at a price we can afford. Now, as a listener of this podcast, Talkspace wants to give you $100 off your first month. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. Make sure you use the code West to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. Any last things you'd like to share, Mrs. Emily West?
2: You know, life is too short not to get the support you need.
1: Amen to that. So check out Talkspace.com or download the app today. Now it's time for songs from the Storyhouse. Today's song from the Storyhouse is Truth Be Told.
0: I say I'm fine, yeah I'm fine Oh I'm fine, hey I'm fine But I'm not I'm broken And when it's out of control I say it's under control But it's not and you know it. I don't know why it's so hard to admit it. When being honest is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall, there's no sin you don't already know. So let the truth be told.
1: If there was ever a song that I've written that feels like, well, my autobiography in three minute form, this is that song. This is the story of a good preacher's kid who felt pressure to be perfect from day one. Pressure not necessarily from my parents, but just from the role of growing up in the church and feeling like all eyes were on me. Sitting in the front row every Sunday, feeling like everybody expected me to be perfect. And so I expected that of myself. And over time, I developed this unwanted skill. It has served me well in my life, but it's no way to live your life. It's the skill of becoming a pretender. That's right. Hello, my name is Pretender. I wonder if you know what I'm talking about. It's the ability to look the part. It's the ability to dial it up. Kind of like what John and I We're talking about the ability to, you know, raise your hand during the slow song and worship to quote the right scripture, to do all the right things, say all the right things, to make everybody think that you're a good Christian. When deep down your heart might be in critical condition, you can talk like you're close to God, but inside you might know that you feel a million miles away from a real, alive and powerful faith in Christ. I've developed that skill and I don't want that skill anymore.
0: Lie number one, you're supposed to have it all together And when they ask how you're doing Just smile and tell them, never better Lie number two, everybody's life is perfect except yours So keep your messes and your wounds And your secrets safe with you behind closed doors Truth be told. The truth is rarely
1: told. Let me tell you who loves it when we become pretenders, when we become a less than authentic version of ourselves. Satan loves that. Why? Because a pretender has never changed the world. It's always a real thing. It's real things like Paul. Paul, who didn't hide the fact that he had made some messes in his life. Instead, he would proudly boast, saying, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. But let me tell you about a perfect God. And that's what it's about. Hey, I'm far from perfect. Now, let me tell you about a perfect God who's done a miracle in my life. And he can do a miracle in your life, too. I wrote this song because now more than ever, I see it in my own life. I see it even in my daughter's lives and everywhere I go. We're all facing a pressure, a pressure to be perfect. It may come from the church. It may come from an upbringing like I had. It certainly comes from social media right now. This ability that we have to focus on a highlight reel, to put our best foot forward always, to edit photos of ourselves, to make sure that nobody ever sees the not-so-put-together version of ourselves. Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, Described how people use Facebook like this. He said people are building an image and an identity for themselves, which in a sense is their own brand. You hear that? We're all in the marketing business, basically. We're pushing our brand and the temptation to make our brand shine like a diamond makes fessing up about our flaws less and less of an option. We become the creators of this less than authentic public persona and it can get to the point where even the good things we do are driven by the wrong motivations. I'm talking to myself right now. We have to ask ourselves though, probing questions like this. Am I reading my Bible because I wanna grow in my faith and get closer to the heart of God? Or am I doing it so I can find a scripture to scribble in my journal and take an artsy picture to post online to present the appearance of someone who's close to the heart of God? Confession. I've done that. How about you? You know who else lived this way, this inauthentic, pretender way? The Pharisees. And Jesus spoke up. He didn't let them go on their way. He spoke right to the artificial shine of the Pharisees' perfect perception and called out their heart's true condition. This is what he warned them in Matthew 6. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. You see, the Pharisees were missing the point and they were on the verge of missing the reward. And while Jesus' words for them might have been harsh, Jesus, the only perfect one who ever lived, was freeing them from the pressure to be perfect. And he's doing the same with us. I believe he wants you and me to feel free as well. Paul knew what that freedom was all about. It was only freedom that would allow him to write words like this. In 2 Corinthians twelve nine, he said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. He goes on to 1 Timothy and he says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. That's what real looks like. That's what authentic is. Not leading with your perfect perception, but being real with the flaws. When we're willing to be the real, authentic, flawed diamonds we were created to be, God's power and patience go on display for others. And that's far more beautiful and cherished than living some less than authentic life of a pretender. This is an awesome quote by Brennan Manning. I'm I'm quoting Brennan Manning twice in one episode, but there's a reason for it. This is what he wrote. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. See, by grace, Paul was set free from any pressure to hide or deny his imperfections. In fact, he was actually empowered by his imperfections. Did you hear that? He was empowered by his imperfections. The enemy doesn't want us to believe that there's power to be discovered in our imperfections. And that's why we get so tempted to hide them away but we get empowered by our imperfections to speak more boldly about what God has done in our lives. By acknowledging our dark side, just like Paul had, we are opening up the door for God to use every part of our story. Now that's freedom. When you realize that God doesn't want to just use the good parts of your story, he wants to use every part I was thinking about how often I try to decide for God which parts of my story I'll allow him to use, right? I build my highlight reel, then I offer up all of my good stuff, and I say, here you go, God, use me. But what if all the while God is looking back at me and you when we say that? And what if he says this in response? I know about your good stuff, my child. I'm the one who gave it to you. Now hand over all the rest. Give me your strongest temptation, your Achilles heel. Give me your shadow side that you're afraid to show. Give me the worst parts of your life, the roughest corners of your character. Dare to believe that I see it all and I love you still. Dare to believe that I can shine brighter through a real sinner than through a perfect pretender. I hope when you hear this song that it challenges you to do the same exact thing writing the song has challenged me to do. To choose the more difficult path. Be one of the few brave souls who dares to be the truest, most rough around the edges, far from perfect, authentic version of ourselves. Grace's strong arms have lifted the pressure of perfection off of our shoulders now. And Jesus is saying, you're free now. You're free to tell the whole story. The last thing a lost and hurting world needs to see is a church full of people pretending that they've got it all together. That's not going to reach a hurting world. What is going to reach a hurting world is somebody who's willing to step into the light with the good, the bad, and the broken of their story and say, Hey, I'm far from perfect, but let me tell you about a perfect God who can change your life. You're free. Tell the whole story. Let the truth be told. I don't know
0: why it's so hard to admit it When being honest is the only Sin you don't already know So let the truth be told
1: well, that's our show for today. I want to thank my guest, John Steingard. You're going to get to hear more from him tomorrow when we finish up our conversation in a special bonus episode. Now, there's an important question that I asked him, one that I said I would ask every single guest, and that is a question about a Blue Couch story. You guys know my Blue Couch story. I asked Jesus into my heart watching a Billy Graham crusade sitting on a Blue Couch In my childhood home in Chicago, Illinois, I hesitated to ask that question to John at first because of where he is now, saying that he no longer believes in God, and yet I decided to ask the question anyway, and his answer is going to surprise you. You do not want to miss it. Also, you might notice something very important missing from today's episode, and that is our segment called Dad Vice. And that's because we've moved Dad Vice to the end of tomorrow's bonus. Episode. And we did that for a very specific reason. My dad's been a pastor for over 40 years, and I wanted to give him a chance to speak in response to this conversation with John Steingard. This conversation about faith, about God being real, about defending your faith, about knowing what you believe and why and my dad has such a rich perspective on that so be sure to tune in tomorrow for a special bonus episode where we conclude our conversation with john steingard we hear his blue couch story and we hear from my dad with a special segment of dad vice that's our show for today have a great day and we'll see you next time (laughs)
0: <laughs> but seriously, I I, I
1: do.